Welcome. My name is George Mann, and I'm the writer of Newbreen Hobbs, Witchwood, and Star Wars The High Republic. This is Kevin Shinnick, writer of Star Wars Force Collector. I'm Kevin Scott, one of the story architects of Star Wars The High Republic. This is Dominic Pace, who plays Gekko the Bounty Hunter from The Mandalorian. Hi, I'm Claudia Gray. I write Star Wars books. And you're listening. And you are listening. And you are listening. To Star Wars Comics in Canon, the Force is strong with this one. Hello there and welcome to Star Wars Comics in Canon, your guide to the wider Star Wars canon through the comic book lens. And to take you on this journey, I'm your host, Mike Burton. And so brings another High Republic book review. So my friends, here we are once again, more High Republic content right into your veins or tickle your ears. And we are here with the review of Quest for Planet X by Tessa Grattan. So in case you haven't tuned in before, for these book reviews, I start off by giving my spoiler-free thoughts, so there will be no spoilers of anything to do with the book's plot or characters or anything like that. That'll only be the sort of first part of the review. It's normally quite a short thing, because obviously I want to talk about the book itself. Then I give you slightly more spoilers, a little bit more information on the book itself, maybe what's in the first couple of chapters, maybe what's in the blurb, that sort of thing. And then I'll give my full spoiler warning, and then I'll go through a lot of the characters, their journeys, more in-depth look at the themes of the book, and then and towards the end, I'll give you a plot overview. So if you don't have a chance to pick up this book, you still have a good idea of what was going on. But I'll say this as I say in every book review and all the comic episodes I do as well. Please support the creators of this release. Read it where you can because it is a really, really good book and I would recommend it. But with that all in mind, friends, let's get into the book itself. So as I said, it's called Quest for Planet X and it is written by Tessa Grattan. Now, the junior novels, which this is, have often got illustrations in them, which I really, really enjoy personally. And the illustrator for this one is Peter Antonson. He's actually done quite a few other of the junior novels in the High Republic as well. Really, really like his art style. And I love having a visual element to these books as well. So the book was released the 4th of April, 2023, and it takes place in the High Republic's Phase 2, Wave 2. So to elaborate a little bit, in case you aren't familiar, the High Republic is set into three phases. So phase one is set 200 years before the Skywalker saga, and that is phase one. There are three waves within that. Phase one is now over. Phase two is a prequel to phase one. So phase two is set around 150 years before phase one. So this means that phase two is set around 350 years before the Phantom Menace, which is approximately 382 years before A New Hope, aka before the Battle of Yavin. Phase 3 of the High Republic is going to be released later this year, but I'll delve into that once we actually get there, because I haven't actually finished with Phase 2 yet. But the way Phase 2 is set up is the first wave of it is sort of pre the Battle of Jeddah, and the second wave of it is post the Battle of Jeddah. Now, Phase 2 seems to take place only over a few weeks, maybe a couple of months at most, whereas Phase 1 of the High Republic, I believe, took place around a year and a half. I believe that in the first phase of the High Republic, each wave is approximately six months between them, whereas in phase two, it seems like maybe a few days, maybe a couple weeks. So it's a much narrower timescale, but it's still incredibly interesting. So as I said, this is set in wave two. So this is set after the Battle of Jeddah. And generally, the reading order of Phase 2 is slightly different to the reading order of Phase 1. Phase 1 was quite simple. It was the adult book first, then the junior novel, and then the young adult novel in each wave, and that was generally consistent with how it went. 
Whereas in phase two, it's almost like a palindrome, so the same forwards and backwards. So as far as I can tell, it's the young adult novel first, Path of Deceit, then the junior novel, Quest for the Hidden City, then the adult novel, Convergence, then the audio drama, Battle of Jeddah, then the adult novel, Cataclysm, this junior novel, Quest for Planet X, and then finishing off with the Path of Vengeance YA. So it's YA, junior, adult, audio drama, adult, junior, YA. Ignoring the comics, I'm not going to get into that here. So each of the books as well, there's two of them. So phase two, there's two of each, whereas obviously in phase one, there are three of each. But essentially, they're kind of loose sequels to each other. All of the books somewhat intertwine, kind of because they're different characters' perspectives. While certain events in the galaxy are going on, obviously the Battle of Jeddah being a main one in this phase. But the main link between the two YA novels, the two junior novels, the two adult novels, is that the characters, they're primarily the same characters that you get. So this isn't a spoiler, this is on the cover, and this is literally to do with every single piece of content you will see about this book. But in Quest for the Hidden City, two of the main characters were Rupa Natani and Das Lefbruck. Now, Rupa Natani is a Jedi, she's on the cover of this book, and then you've got Das Lefbruck, who's also on the cover of this book. He's just a standard human, you can tell it's him on the cover because there's goggles on his head, and I'll delve into the third individual a little bit later on. So last little thing to note about the timeline, this is set a few months since Quest for the Hidden City, and it is only a day or so after the Battle of Jeddah. So the Battle of Jeddah is still very, very fresh, or it's maybe even still somewhat going on a little bit, but that's generally where we sit, and that's why I'm tackling this book here, because I'm trying to release the High Republic content as close to chronologically as I can feasibly do, along with the release orders and etc. for that. So I've got this, and then I'll be doing the second volume of the Marvel High Republic comics, and then if they get delivered in time, I'll be doing the High Republic Adventures comics. I've also got the Nameless Terror comics by Dark Horse, the Quest for the Jedi one-shot comic as well, and then I've also got Path of Vengeance. Path of Vengeance should be the last piece of content that I tackle for this phase of the High Republic. I'm currently about a third through the book I think but I can't give my review of that until I've all done all the other stuff so I've got a little bit of time and just so you can check out the previous book reviews I have done for phase two of the High Republic these details will be in the description but just for your audio files who don't like reading let me just say it out for you so Path of Deceit review was released on 7th of January this is all in 2023 Quest for the Hidden City was February 14th Convergence March 18th The Battle of Jeddah April 22nd and Cataclysm was out the 17th of June then I also tackled the first volume of the Marvel's Phase 2 comics this was just the first 5 out of 10 that was in episode 126 of Comics and Canon which was released May 13th 2023 and then the High Republic Adventures volume 1 I released that last week so that was Saturday 7th of July and that was episode 132 so for book reviews I don't actually do the episode numbers just to clarify any confusion but if you don't want to type into your podcast catch or anything like that you can go to YouTube and go to the High Republic playlists and all of those are right in there. So my thoughts for this book. Well, I really, really enjoyed this one. So I've never been ashamed of saying how much I enjoy the junior novels of The High Republic. Before delving into Star Wars The High Republic, I'd never picked up the junior novels of any other Star Wars content. I don't even know if there actually are. I probably should have looked that up before thinking this. But with The High Republic, it's quite easy to see. You know, when it comes to other Star Wars content, it's kind of like where each book, apart from the odd trilogy and things, most books are standalone, so if you want to pick up a standalone book, you start, well, would I rather pick an adult novel, a YA novel, or a junior novel? And generally, I'd lean off the junior novels. Whereas in The High Republic, because they're all connected and there's important information in all of them, I always say to people, like, if you really want to be a completionist, do not skip out on the junior novels. And in phase one, I actually enjoyed most of the junior novels more than most of the YA novels. Not to say the young adult novels weren't good, just to clarify, but just my own personal preference. 
Now, in this phase so far, I think the YA novels may be the strongest. I'll have to confirm when I finish Path of Vengeance, but Path of Deceit was absolutely phenomenal. Not to say the two adult novels, uh, Convergence and Cataclysm, they were absolutely excellent as well. In this phase, it's actually been the junior novels that haven't been hitting the stride the other books have as well. So it's, it's somewhat changed a little bit. Once again, nothing on Tessa Grattan for this book or George Mann for Quest for the Hidden City. They are both still really, really good books, still worth a read, really enjoyable. It's just that when you compare them to Path of Deceit or Cataclysm or Convergence, it's just those other three novels are like near 10 out of 10. And these ones are just like, yeah, these are good, 7 out of 10 or so. That's kind of how I'd rate them. But I would say that personally, I think I enjoyed this Quest for Planet X slightly more than Quest for the Hidden City. It just felt a bit more open, a bit more big. It felt like a bit more could happen in certain ways. Although Quest for the Hidden City does have a couple of really strong gut punches in it, this book I think is just the pacing's a little bit better maybe. I found that the story itself intrigued me a little bit more. It delves into hyperspace quite a bit, which is something in the canon we've not really delved into, and the hyperspace families and things, and the whole concept of Planet X is something that's really, really interesting. And if you're not planning on reading this really soon, please stick around to the end where I give you the plot overview and more details, because the actual importance of Planet X in the High Republic Phase 1, Phase 2, and Phase 3 it will probably astound you if you aren't already aware. So I don't want to give you any more hints yet. There's some other connected content, which I almost just said, but I won't say that connected content because I'll spoil it. But, but I'll delve into that when we get to the spoiler section. But yeah, I thought this book was really, really good. Really liked the characters. I like seeing the growth of the characters since the first book written by George Mann. There's some new characters that I find interesting. Two that kind of stand out a little bit. One is not as new. They're just kind of like they were a side character in a way. But another one is quite a front and center character that I find to be quite interesting. And the whole general premise is that there's a great hyperspace chase going on. And the graphs and the Santecas go against each other. And loads of other people can get involved. In essence, it's a special event to try and set new hyperspace lanes because imagine a hyperspace lane kind of like a motorway but in space. It's really hot or highway if you're not from uh, Britain. It's, it's a hard one because the way I would kind of describe it is if you travel in hyperspace, the reason you need hyperspace coordinates and all this stuff, when you're traveling that quickly... What you have to do is make sure that you're not going to smash into some comets or a planet or a sun or something. And the whole point of the hyperspace lanes is like, here's a way that hasn't been necessarily carved out, but here's a route that isn't going to be obstructed by any debris or any planets or anything like that. So if you go at light speed in this one direction or this lane in a sense, you know, one that doesn't have like an immediate 90 degree turn, it kind of slowly curves through the galaxy. If you have something like that, it means you can get to your destination safely. And as we saw in phase one of the High Republic, if something gets in the way of a hyperspace lane or while something's going through hyperspace, it could be cataclysmic. Hence the great disaster, hence the great emergencies, hence the whole sort of jumping off point in Light of the Jedi. So that element of things does intrigue me quite a bit. You know, the whole hyperspace travel stuff really intrigues me. And especially where the Pergil, which are beings that you saw in Star Wars Rebels, you saw like the silhouette of them in Mandalorian Series 3, I think the first episode. But they are these basically space whales that can travel through hyperspace. And the rumors that you're told in Star Wars Rebels is that spacefarers and things saw these creatures go through hyperspace and that inspired them to basically create hyperspace for your ships and things. Now, I would have loved a Pergil to get mentioned in this book. As far as I can remember off the top of my head, they don't get mentioned, which is fine, but I really like that concept of seeing these weird creatures that can go through hyperspace and then assumedly humans watching them and then developing their own machines. Don't know if that's going to be tackled in the really early Star Wars films that we've got coming out, the Dawn of the Jedi, whatever it's going to be called. Really, really interested to see if that's going to play a part, if hyperspace was a thing 25,000 years prior. But it's just such an interesting thing, especially myself being such a massive sci-fi nerd. I just really, really like those sort of concepts. 
So there's this hyperspace race going on in essence, and then three characters decide to go off and enter it for one reason or another, which I will get into. But yeah, I found this to be really interesting. I think it tackles some very interesting themes, which, especially with these junior novels, I think are very important because although people like myself do read these junior novels, the main demographic it is aimed for, I think, is sort of 10 year olds. So I think juniors is like 10 to 12 year olds. Then I think young adults is kind of teenager, sort of 14 to 17 ish. And then adults is kind of, it's loosely 18 plus, but in the adult novels, there's no like overt swearing. There's not much sex. In fact, sex is almost always in the young adult novels more than the adult novels, it seems, apart from, I think, Rising Storm. And then, you know, drugs in Star Wars, they're not really mentioned that much. You get spice and things like that. But in the adult novels, at least to the higher public, there hasn't been that much. I think it's more just the language, the pacing, the amount of content and information that one has to kind of absorb when reading some of the adult novels. Even I found them at times to be quite a lot to deal with as much as I enjoy them. So I think the junior novels, they're far more stripped back. So the young adult novels normally have got like a handful of characters with normally two storylines going on, maybe three. Whereas I find the adult novels is like at least three storylines going on, maybe even up to five. Whereas with the junior novel, as far as I can tell for this one and the other one, it's pretty much one story. You do get a little bit of other storylines, like there's the odd chapter, which is following another character. But the majority of the time that character then just shows up. So it's almost like just a prologue almost to this character's introduction to the rest of the characters in the plot which i personally really like one thing i really like about this book as well much like many of the other junior novels not just the illustrations but because obviously it's a much smaller book both in thickness but also the page size is much smaller there's less pages and etc you can get through this book really quick like most of the junior novels you can read in probably the time it would take you to read a fifth to a quarter of an adult novel so i really like that because it makes me feel it's it's what they kind of encourage children for because long chapters do have their benefits you know when you're reading a long chapter especially when it's a really action-filled chapter and there's not really a good place to stop totally get that but me as an individual especially with styles where they change characters quite a lot certain authors will have it where they have one big chapter and then every few pages they'll have like that little symbol thing between paragraphs that indicates either a change of perspective or a change in time and then it'll be another character's perspective and although i think that does work quite a lot of the time I have much more of a preference when it comes to each chapter is kind of the perspective of the character. So I think that very loosely, not to fire any shots at anyone, but like I love Charles Saul's writing. I love Kevin Scott's writing, but I generally prefer Kevin Scott's writing to Charles Saul's on the basis that Kevin Scott, I think he prefers slightly shorter chapters, whereas Charles Saul is more, he kind of, he writes much bigger chapters and they work really well a lot of the time. But um, yeah, these junior novels, they're, they're really well written and when I spoke to George Mann, so make sure you check out that uh, conversation I had with him. I, I posted it on the feed of Genuine Chit Chat. It's on my YouTube channel. You can see the video version of that. But George Mann, absolutely excellent gentleman to speak with. Really, really interesting. But one of the things he says, he tries to not talk down to the reader. Even when they're a younger audience, he doesn't talk down to them. He tries to almost talk up to them. And that's one thing that I think the junior novels, I think all of the writers of the High Republic junior novels have done as well. I think they've not that George Mann has told them because they were all doing High Republic stuff before George Mann kind of got into the fold. But I think that idea, that concept is really across the board with the majority of Star Wars writers. I mean, I've even uh, flicked through and read some of the really young kid stuff. And even the really young kid stuff, like obviously when it's written for like a six-year-old, it's very different to an adult novel. But it does not read exactly the same as certain other kids' books may read. Maybe it's just the demographic. Maybe it's just because I haven't actually read that many kids' books, unsurprisingly. Or at least I haven't for several decades. But I really don't find that when you're reading this book, it doesn't feel like you're reading a book for children. It feels like you're reading a book. The main characters are sort of young teenagers. You know, the ages generally for the main characters are between sort of 12 to 15-ish. So 
they're not like kid kids. They're not like eight year olds. They're they're still they're young people, but they're not like young children. So you know that's obviously a part of perception and things. So that you know when someone of that age is reading this, they can kind of see themselves in it. But yeah, I, I really really enjoyed this book. I think it is for me more enjoyable than Quest for the Hidden City, but. I don't think it quite hits the heights of Path of Deceit, Cataclysm or Convergence. However, what I do find is I think that this book really goes up against the other junior novels for phase one. It's pretty close. I don't think it's quite Race to Crash Point Tower. I might be spoiled there because Ram Jamaram is amazing. And also Race to Crash Point Tower is kind of like an alternate perspective of The Rising Storm, which is also my favorite High Republic book. Either The Rising Storm or Path of Deceit, still haven't figured that out. But when it comes to Test of Courage and Mission to Disaster, both written by Justina Ireland... Those are really, really good books. I think this is in a very similar vein to that. Now, I do prefer Vanestra Rowe in general to Rupa Natani. Nothing against Rupa Natani, and I think the way that Rupa perceives the Force, which was confirmed in Quest for the Hidden City, she sees the Force as colours. Once again, when I spoke to George Mann about that, he gave some really interesting elaboration on why he's done that. And really go check that conversation out because especially for these junior novels in the High Republic and for the Battle of Jeddah, he says some really, really insightful things. But with Rupert seeing the Force's colours, really, really enjoy that. It's a really cool, like, idea. And she is a character. She's a really good character. Like, she's very intelligent, but she still questions certain things. She has her own agency, but she's still a part of the Jedi Order. Really, really great character, especially a great role model for young people as well. But Vanestra Rowe, for me, I just really clicked with Vanestra Rowe. She was one of the most interesting characters in Phase 1 of the High Republic. And so I think because of my own biases there that I slightly prefer Test of Courage and Mission to Disaster. But I think really Vanestra being in those books and not this one, it's probably the only real thing that makes me enjoy those books more. So this is a really, really good book. So I think I've said most of what I can say about this book without spoiling anything. So uh, now that's going to go into the very minor spoiler territory. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the characters. I'm going to talk about that other character that is on the cover. I'm going to go a little bit more into the plot, but mainly just what we get in the first few chapters. I'm going to delve a little bit more into the themes and things. And then after that, I'll give you no spoiler warnings and stuff before I give my full unfiltered thoughts. But before we do that, I just want to read you about the crawl and uh, then I'll give you some more of my thoughts. There is conflict in the galaxy. Chaos on the pilgrim moon of Jeddah has resulted in a devastating battle. In the aftermath, the Jedi have learned of the involvement of the seemingly benevolent group The Path of the Open Hand in violent interplanetary conspiracies. With communications down, the leader of The Path, the Mother, races back to the planet Dalna to make her ultimate escape. Little do the Jedi know, the Mother is about to unleash mysterious nameless creatures with the power to destroy the Order once and for all. So I believe that's the wave two crawl. So I believe it's the same in Cataclysm, but I don't recall there being a crawl in Path of Vengeance because that book is structured slightly differently. But um, I'm not going to delve into that here and confuse matters. So let's delve a little bit more into the characters. So first of all, we've got Rupa Natani, who I mentioned slightly earlier. Um, she, at the start of this book, is on Batu and she is learning some stuff in the archives. Now that falls from the back of Quest for the Hidden City, because after that fairly traumatic event, she went to Batu, obviously in the archives, and her master, Solandra Show, who does appear a very small amount in this book, she goes off to Jeddah. She actually goes there to kind of find herself a little bit, because, spoiler alert for Quest for the Hidden City... Salandra Show lost a Padawan years ago and has never really come to terms with it properly. So she wants to go to Jeddah to really find herself, come to terms with that, and then go back and be the best master she can be to Rupa. Now, if you want to find out what happened to Salandra, you need to either listen to the audio drama of the Battle of Jeddah, which I would recommend because it's great, read the script book of it, or listen to my episode on it, and I give a lot of information on the characters in that, including Salandra Show. 
Couple other things with Rupert. Obviously, I mentioned earlier, she sees the force in colours, which is really, really interesting. She's around 15 years old. She does seem to act above her age. She's quite mature for a 15 year old. And also she can sense when others commune with the force, which I don't know if that's an ability that every Jedi can use or if it's more of a specialised thing, but I just found that quite interesting. So then on to Das Lefbruck. So he and his dad Spence were in Quest for the Hidden City. Das lost his mother prior to the events of these two books. So it's just him and his dad. They got stranded on a planet of Gloam back in the prior book, as I mentioned. And then in this book, what Das wants to do is he actually wants to kind of do things differently to his dad. He wants to kind of go off on himself. I think he wants to become part of a Pathfinder team as well. That's kind of his dream. And he's a fairly switched on kid. He's around 12, 13 years old. So he's a little bit younger than Rupert and the other character I'm going to delve into in a moment. And he's very enthusiastic when he's around people he's comfortable with, but usually he's a bit more nervous and shy. So this is more of a journey of him trying to become a little bit more independent, and that's one of the common themes as well, which leads me on to the third character, and this is a character which is on the cover of the book, and that is Sky Graph. So Sky Graph is non-binary, they use the pronouns they, them. They're around 15 years old, they are very wealthy because they're a member of the Graph family, and the Graphs and the Santecas are two of the leading hyperspace families, so for centuries prior they've been mapping out hyperspace lanes. They give most of them to public, but there's a lot of talks of private hyperspace lanes that affluent individuals with a lot of money could then rent and then save time on travelling and things, which obviously when this is mentioned in the book, Rupert is not overly a fan of, because it does kind of go against the Jedi's teachings in a lot of ways, but obviously the Jedi and, and finances and money and things, they don't really jive very well because the Jedi don't really have a concept of money in that kind of way. They never really have their own money apart from when they're going on missions. They don't need money, so it's quite an interesting little dynamic there. But yeah, Sky is rich, but Sky is also clever and hospitable. Um, Sky really likes to be a host and is very good at it, and heard lots of stories about the Jedi from their dad, but their dad has been missing for over a year. And Sky is trying to kind of work through their own stuff as well, linking in with that theme of wanting to be independent. You know, Rupa's trying to prove to a master that she can be independent. And also, you know, when you're a Padawan, you're always somewhat trying to kind of prove that you are ready to be a Jedi Knight in some way. Das is trying to prove for his dad that he doesn't need to do everything his dad does and that he can be his own person. While Sky is kind of trying to go against the grain of what was expected of them in the Graf family because it's quite you know, wealthy and a lot of it is about social standing and things like that, which Sky isn't really interested in, or at least as far as I can tell. And Sky does also have an older brother called Helis. I think it's Helis. H-E-L-I-S. Helis? Helis? Sky is a quite an interesting individual because as a character, I really, really like them. And just to put all my cards on the table, I have no problem with non-binary individuals, people who go by they, them, nor do I have an issue with it in literature. I think it's good representation. You know, I'm sure there's some non-binary individuals who have read this book and really connect with Sky, not just because they're a well-written character, but also because they identify as non-binary. But I will put the little caveat, and I believe I said this in one of the previous book reviews I've done. I can't remember off the top of my head when I did it, but my only real issue with they, them in literature, again, not saying it shouldn't be done, it's just that at times it gets a little bit confusing as to what is going on. You know, if it says, for example, Das and Sky went and did this and then they did this, you would assume because both of them were mentioned, it would be both of them doing it. And they, them usually is used as a plural, not as a singular. So sometimes when you're reading something, sometimes I've just misread things, you know, you miss out a word here or there, and then you have to reread the sentence and it makes complete sense. But in this book and in other books with they, them, it's not just Tessa Grattan. I've done it a few times where I've read a paragraph like two or three times and I'm like, I don't know if this non-binary individual is doing this thing or if the group of them is doing this thing. So I just want to put that out there. 
again, not anything against Tessa or non-binary individuals or anything like that. I'm just pre-warning that if anyone's going to pick up this book, they may struggle a little bit like I have. Even though I'm completely cognizant of the whole they-them stuff in literature, it is just something which I do personally find harder to read because of just the ubiquity of they-them being used as a plural as opposed to a singular. But that's a separate issue to the book itself. I just want to put that out there. So the kind of plot of this book, you've got these three characters I mentioned, all three of them are seen on the cover, and they want to be involved in the great hyperspace chase. So it's something that has been created by the Graphs and the Sandtechers, obviously I mentioned them before, and what Sky and Das really want to do is head to Planet X. So in the spoilery part, I'll give you a little bit more information on Planet X, but right now, Planet X is a planet that was actually mentioned in Quest for the Hidden City. It was, in essence, a planet that Das and his dad they managed to find, I believe, when they were with Sunshine Dobbs, who is a member of the Path of the Open Hand, he kind of pops up here and there in most of the Phase 2 literature. And they got to Planet X. It's like a utopia. It's beautiful. It's all these amazing things. And then they start to come back, and then Sunshine betrays them, and that's how they ended up getting stranded on Gloam. So Das wants to go back there, wants to find the ship that they left there, you know, his and his father's ship. Also wants to find the planet again while Sky is also trying to find the planet, because the planet is kind of shrouded in a lot of mythos. You know, it's called Planet X, and hyperspace fairers have been trying to find it for decades, if not centuries, and Das, Spence, and Sunshine seem to be the only individuals that have any idea of where it could be. So that's the kind of the general idea. I believe on the cover they're kind of holding this, like, hollow thing on the cover of the book, and I believe that's meant to signify them trying to find Planet X. So the three of them are meant to go and find this planet, and Rupert kind of gets roped into it, because right at the start, she's on Batuu, and then Das kind of runs up to her and says, oh, my friend's in trouble, they're going to get beaten up, or something like that, or their ship's going to get stolen. So Rupert, as a Jedi would, thinks, oh, you're my friend, I trust you, I'm going to go off and help. And then Sky is being confronted by what seems to be a couple of thugs, there's no violence, there's no attacking, she's just like, you guys should probably back off a little bit, let me kind of go in and figure out what's going on. They all leave, she talks to Daz and meets Sky, and then it kind of gets elaborated a little bit, that it is actually Sky's brothership, Helis, who I mentioned earlier. So Sky and Das say to Rupert what they want to do, they want to go to the great hyperspace chase, they want to find this planet X. Rupert's a little bit unsure, but does kind of get convinced, but along the way she's constantly questioning her decision. She's thinking, you know, am I doing this because it's the will of the Force? Am I doing this in a kind of rebellion against my master? Am I doing this because I'm bored on Batu? Like, what is the reason in which I'm actually here? Am I here because I believe I can actually help my friend, and by proxy their friend? Or is it really I'm kind of wanting this quest for adventure? Like, what, what do I actually want? So that's quite an interesting part that Rupert thinks about the entirety of this book. So I really like the dynamic in this. One of the things I really enjoy about the High Republic is putting a lot of non-Jedi characters with a lot of Jedi characters. You know, in the prequels, it was pretty much just Jedi surrounded by Jedi, and then obviously in the Clone Wars, there are clones as well. But I really like, in Equus, normal citizens of the galaxy, being able to interact with Jedi and ask just certain questions and be like, oh, I've heard stories about your weird magic, or I've heard this or that about you, or when they see a Jedi do certain things, they're like really, really excited by it. I really like that element because I feel like that's how we perceive the Jedi in a lot of ways. So I feel like we connect with some of these characters. It's a trope in a lot of the MCU films, and it happens in lots of other films as well. But there's, I think I first heard it in sort of Honest trailers when they were doing uh, Shang-Chi, where it was kind of like, you have the reaction friend. So it's just the friend who constantly reacts to things, who's like a normal individual. So you've got the the nomad, I think it's Jacob, um, in the Fantastic Beasts franchise. You've got whatever Aquafina's character is called in Shang-Chi. There's quite a few of them across various uh, franchises and films within said franchises, where it's just like they say something funny, which is just a retelling of what they just saw happen. And it's that kind of thing where they're just befuddled by what's going on. That's kind of what Sky and Das are like a little bit. 
There's one scene, which isn't a spoiler, where Rupert is practicing her lightsaber forms. It's on Sky's ship, which is actually their brother's ship. The ship itself is called the Brightbird. But yeah, Rupert is practicing lightsaber forms on the Brightbird, and Das and Sky just quietly watch. And it's just like, it's a really nice moment. I quite like it. And Rupert's trying to balance how she feels about it all. You know, she's trying to not be overconfident. She's trying not to be arrogant about things. And she's generally not a very arrogant Jedi anyway. But like when she's doing these cool things and they're like, oh my God, wow, you're so amazing. You can do anything. She's trying to be like, I can't do anything. You know, there is a limit to what I can do. But yeah, there are some cool things I can do. But she also doesn't want to take away from like the excitement and the wonder from Das and Sky. And obviously, when you're getting a degree of compliments when it's not too much and from the right people, it does feel nice to be complimented to most of the time. So it's one of those where she's trying to balance this. But these are kind of things that one of the reasons I really like the junior novels and a lot of the young adult novels as well is that some of the challenges the characters in this face, they are challenges that everyday humans do face. You know, we all face these kinds of things, especially the kind of coming of age stories. It's one of the reasons they're some of my favorite kinds of movies, coming of age movies, is because when you're watching someone trying to find themselves in the world or in these cases in the galaxy or whatever, they still are going through that thing of it's an identity crisis. When you're a teenager, you're trying to find out who you are, what you like, why you like it, if there is a reason you can pinpoint, who you're attracted to, if you are attracted to anyone, you know, what does that mean for your social standing? You know, what friends have you got? And you start to question these things that you never even thought about before. So there's lots of layers of this, I think, in this junior novel, while still being an amazing sci-fi space fantasy sort of tale. And it's one of my favourite things about Star Wars, and I think that's one of the things that really appeal to people, among other things, in the original trilogies, because there's a lot of social commentary, you know, about fascism and things like that, hence the Empire and colonialism, etc. But then there's also got this character of Luke, and he's kind of the everyman when we start the tale, and then he goes into this incredible world, and we go on the adventure with him. It happens with Ezra in Rebels, it happens with a lot of characters. And we quite enjoy those things, because we like to envision ourselves in those moments, and then when it comes across, you know, those characters have certain issues, you know, they, f- they have a crush on someone and they don't like them back. Like pretty much everyone's been in that kind of situation. It's all these kind of layers that I just, I really, really enjoy. And I think in this book, it's done really, really well. And I can say that, you know, George Mann's book does it really well as well. And then also the junior novels from phase one do it as well. You know, Justine Ireland is especially really good at that. Some other things that I mentioned in this before I get into my spoiler review are the communication boys. So this delves in a little bit more into how communication across the mid-rim and the outer rim really works, basically outside of the core world. Because this is a time of exploration, this is a time where the Republic is trying to branch out of the known galaxy as well. So that's where there are Pathfinder teams everywhere, they're taking note of where like new planets are. They're also trying to set up communications so that exploration is much easier, because obviously if you have a communication array, if anything negative happens, you can call for help. So there's a bit in this, there's a bit of it in The Blade, like really, really small amount. I think the first issue of The Blade, which I tackled several episodes ago, I think it was episode 130 odd, something like that. There's a little bit of it in that. There was a bit of it in Quest for the Hidden City as well. But I believe, as far as I can tell, in phase two, this book gives you the most amount of information on hyperspace, on hyperspace prospecting, on communication boys, on those sorts of things. And I just find it really, really interesting. So I think that's generally everything. So what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read the blurb slash the publisher's summary on the back of the book. That gives you a bit more in-depth look into what's going to happen in this book. And then from there, I'll give you my full spoiler warning, and then we'll delve right in to my spoilery thoughts. It is a time of uncertainty in the Outer Rim. Communications are unstable across the frontier, and rumours swirl of conflict between the Jedi Knights and a group known as the Path of the Open Hand but none of that slows down the Republic's two most powerful prospecting families, the Grafs and the Santecas, who announced the Hyperspace Chase, a contest to chart new hyperlanes. Young prospector Das Lufbrock and brash teenager Sky Graf have their sights set on winning the race. They just need one more person to help them achieve their goal. 
Jedi Padawan Rupa Natani. But after Rupa reluctantly agrees to join the team, she learns that their real plan is to find the mysterious and legendary Planet X. The trio's quest takes an unexpected turn when they come into contact with members of the Path of the Open Hand. Their journey is about to become more exciting and dangerous than they ever could have expected, and the three heroes will have to put their goals aside to help the Jedi and the galaxy before it's too late. So there you go, that gives you a bit more detail into the plot, relatively speaking what I've already mentioned, so hopefully no further spoilers from there. But now I'm going to give you my big spoiler warning. So from here I'm going to talk more about the characters, the themes, and then towards the end I'll give a full plot overview to have a good idea of what happens in this book if you don't have a chance to read it. But again, please try and pick this up where you can. So the first thing to mention is the character that was kind of touched upon in that blurb, which is a character called Felix. So it's written like Felix, but it's two separate names, so I assume it's meant to be Felix. So that's the Path of the Open Hand member that is being mentioned on the back there. Now, when Sky, Das, and Rupa actually come into contact with the Path of the Open Hand, they do come into contact with three of them, and then they kind of keep hold of one of them to kind of help them do a couple of things. I'll delve into that in a minute. But this other individual is someone called Felix. Now, if you've read Path of Deceit, then Fel Ix may actually be someone that you remember. I don't recall mentioning them in my review off the top of my head because they didn't seem like a major character, but I think I did mention their species as a Kessarine. So Kessarines have tricouples in essence, so three people get together. I don't know why it's called a tricouple, I'm sure it's a thruple, but I suppose that maybe in Star Wars they didn't want to call it a thruple because in modern day that's got some very heavily sexual connotations I think to it. But in essence that's just how their species and their culture works, but their species hasn't really been anywhere else in Legends, I don't think. I think in the High Republic, they were like created for Phase 2, so quite a new species. But essentially, this Kessarin Felix is 19 years old, which is actually fairly old for a Kessarin, apparently. And what the Path of the Open Hand were doing is they were slicing communication boys so that the mother can hear through them and block certain transmissions. So this is spoken about a little bit in Cataclysm. I suspect in Path of Vengeance it's going to be a much more major part, but very minor spoilers for Cataclysm. There's an event that happens on Dalna. There's a point where people are trying to send communications out, but it's not going any further than the Dalna system, which means, you know, Dalna as a planet itself and then the surrounding planets as well, but it won't go any further. And people just think, oh, it's the Outer Rim, you know, communication's always a bit dodgy, those sort of things. But obviously this confirms, as well as I believe in Cataclysm is also confirmed, that the Path of the Open Hand, they hack these boys, and then all communication seems to go through their smooth. But as I said, the mother can monitor anything that goes in and out, and then also can block certain things. So having ultimate control over planets or systems, to a degree, it only really works in the sort of the more outer planets, because obviously if you didn't want the core worlds, people would pick up on it really, really quickly, and it would get repaired really fast as well. But that's essentially how they kind of interact and what Felix is actually doing. And when they were in the Path of Deceit, they were just in the colony with their partners, in the Path of the Open Hand, and they don't actually seem like that much of a villain. And I quite like this character's arc in a way in this book. I find them quite interesting. So this is already the spoiler part, so I'll delve in. So Felix starts off, you know, being a Path of the Open Hand member, hating the fact that Jedi used the Force, those sorts of things. But then Rupa uses the Force to save Felix's life at least once. But after Fel gets saved by Rupa once or twice, and then actually speaks to Rupa, Fel does really start to understand the Jedi a bit more and start to distance themselves from what the Path of the Open Hand are doing because the majority of members in the Path of the Open Hand are told these things about the Jedi and Force users, that they're evil and all kinds of stuff, and they just believe it. You know, I know that's very much an on-the-nose social commentary thing, which is, you know, 
One of the main reasons that racism exists is because racists haven't actually really met any people that they are being racist against. That's like that's quite a common thing when you look through and you look at a lot of the data on it and a lot of the information in this world. Like I'm not trying to get all political, but you know, Star Wars always is political, so it's kind of hard not to. But pretty much anyone who is overtly racist, they've either had one really negative event with a certain demographic of people, or they've never really had any interactions with it, and someone has just been spouting stuff at them. Normally, immigration or scapegoaty stuff. You know, a lot of the time, people get scapegoated and blamed for things. And the path of the open hand, as we see in Cataclysm, as we see in uh, what I've read so far of the Path of Vengeance, and what we see in the comics as well, all these things are kind of culminating together where the Path want power, understandably. And they, I think, or at least the Mother, the Herald, whatever, they kind of see it that the Jedi are the only ones that can stop them. So how would they get about stopping the Jedi? Well, they spread these rumours about the Force, that if a Jedi uses the Force in one part of the galaxy, then the natural Force wouldn't be able to save someone else in the other part of the galaxy, even though there's no evidence to show that and no other Force users believe it, but that's what the path they're trying to say. And obviously, when there's no evidence for it, but also no evidence against it, it's, it's a really, it's an ethereal debate. It's really hard to prove wrong or right. It's not dissimilar to some of the religious discussions or things like that. You know, there's lots of different layers to where this could be kind of framed on in a way. But Felix from the start never really seems like someone who's evil. They just, you know, they want to go back for their family. They want to support their family and things. And they do have a belief system, which is fine. But I really like how they start to learn and grow. And they do ask Rupert quite a few questions about being a Jedi and what is it about this that happens or that and kind of make their own mind up. And I think that that really shows how someone can be on, in air quotes, the opposite side. But if they're open, if they're receptive, and generally if they're a good person and they want to help people, they will normally find that their own bigotry, prejudices, anything like that, normally are misplaced. So moving on from Fell, so there aren't actually that many characters in this book, you know, unlike with some of the adult novels I do notes for and things, I normally have like a line in my notebook per character, whereas in this each character got two or three lines because there's a lot more space for it. Um, so I've already mentioned Fell, Ix, slash Felix, whatever. Um, I've mentioned Solandra Show, who's again barely in this, uh, the Battle of Jedi, you get way more about Solandra. Uh, Rupert I've delved into, uh, Das I've kind of delved into as well. Sky, to a degree, I've kind of delved into, and then their brother, Helis. There's not really much about Helis. Their Sky's older brother doesn't like sharing and is trying to take the bright bird back. That's kind of their whole arc in a way. But then towards the end, Sky and Helis kind of reconvene, and then Sky really shows openly like emotional vulnerability, and Helis is actually receptive to this. So I think their relationship actually gets a lot better from this whole event because the whole time that Sky, Das, and Rupert are trying to find Planet X, it requires loads of hyperspace jumps and you know darting across the galaxy helis is following them the whole time like trying to get to them and they do keep catching up and there's a little bit of a space battle here or there and then inevitably the bright bird does escape and then helis starts to pursue them once again so i do like that it adds there is a bit of drama and there is a bit of weight and danger to a degree but helis was never going to try and kill their younger sibling let alone the younger sibling also with other people on board on the ship they're trying to save so I really like the dynamic of having two ships trying to shoot each other in space, but neither of them are trying to kill each other or do substantial damage. And I really like that. I don't know if it's classed as a trope. I don't know if I've read enough stories to confirm if that be a trope, but there's a book review that I've done on my Patreon, which will be released soon. I don't know if I'm going to release to the public. So who knows if you want to listen to that, either subscribe to my Patreon or donate me some money on coffee and I'll send it your way. But it's Thrawn Treason. So it's the third Thrawn canon novel. And there's a whole battle in that. Again, I won't spoil it, but it's two ships trying to fight each other. But one of the ships is specifically not trying to harm anyone, kill anyone or damage the other ship. And it is such an interesting dynamic. It's so different. And, you know, hats off to Timothy Zahn for not only being a great writer for the many decades of Star Wars he's written for, but that specific space battle is some of my favorite writing in any books. I just thought it was so clever. 
So in this, there's like a, it's a much lower key version. You know, the one in the Thrawn Treason goes on for several chapters, whereas this is like every now and then there'll be like a chapter on it in a sense because it happens, I think, more than once. But I really like that dynamic of two ships trying not to. Anything like that, I just, I quite like. So that's the sort of broad strokes of the plot. And along the way, the reasons it gets a bit more complex is that Sky's also got this thing. I think it's the Astro Resonance Machine is kind of what they land on. It's kind of like a compass. It's kind of like a big plate thing made out of like a bronzy gold sort of thing. But it's like ancient tech and Sky's trying to work out how to use it, but can't quite figure it out. But with the help of Das, who's quite good with mechanical things and hyperspace, you know, he's quite a clever chap. With him and also Rupert's connection to the Force, they managed to figure something out. And it's quite an interesting device. I'd really like to see it, like, visually. I I think I'd really like to see that maybe in concept art or something like that. Maybe if it popped up in another book of the Art of the High Republic or something like that, even if we get a second one of those books. I'm not overly sure, but I would really like to see more of that. I just love old-timey, weird, crazy tech, to be honest with you. Even more so when it's, like, Force-related and stuff. I love Force artifacts and all that kind of stuff. So, really, really interested by that. I've already mentioned kind of the themes and things, but generally the themes are there's the theme of loss because you've got Das who lost his mother and he talks quite openly about that. You've got Sky whose dad's been missing for like a year and Sky has to kind of come to terms with the fact that they may never be able to find their dad again. And I believe that their dad was actually trying to find Planet X. So part of the reason that Sky is so desperately trying to find Planet X is just in case their dad finds the Planet X and is just kind of stranded there or something. So that's one of Sky's other reasoning for wanting to find this planet. It's not just for glory or to kind of prove to the Graf family that they can do anything, but also to try and find the dad. And that's another reason why Sky and Helis kind of connect towards the end of the book, because Sky talks about it. And throughout the book, you get uh, little bits and pieces about Sky's life with Dad and things. And it's it's really, really nice. And I will say, although Sky is non-binary, they barely touch anything to do with them being non-binary or their identity in that regard very much. There's one little line that I do really like about it, but I won't spoil that in here, but they don't like hit you over the head with a non-binary character in any way. So I just want to also clarify that. So as well as loss, another big part is growth, which I kind of touched upon earlier. So you've got Sky, Das, and Rupa. They're all young people. They're all trying to find their way in the universe, just like all teenagers do. But also, they've got the freedom of traveling the galaxy and stuff. So it's them all growing as individuals as well. Family links in with that because, you know, they're Das, Rupa, and Sky are all being defiant of their parental figures. You know, Das is going against what his dad Spence wants. Rupa is going against kind of what Solandra would want for her to do. And then Sky is obviously still going against what the brother wants them to do, but also trying to find out what their dad's doing and is going against their own family's wishes. So lots of elements of that. And I find it's all just lessons that is really interesting and important for everyone to learn and to read about. So again, whenever Star Wars has deep, difficult topics like this within their books, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy that. So yeah, with this book, I think I'm just going to do the plot overview and that will probably be it for me. As I said, with junior novels, there's not actually as much to talk about. You know, with Cataclysm, I could have probably recorded a four hour long podcast on that because Cataclysm is a massive book. There's loads of characters, there's loads of different places they go. Whereas with all the junior novels, they're a lot more small. So there's a lot less to kind of delve into in a sense, although you wouldn't know that from the amount I've been speaking about it. But um, let's delve into the plot overview. So just to clarify, you've got a couple of chapters where you get to hear what Felix is up to or Felix and kind of, you know, saying goodbye to their family, going on this mission for the mother, goodbye to Marder Rowe because Feel is uh, friends with Marder. And then the mission is to slice communication boys. Then I mentioned about Rupa being on Batu, which is Galaxy's Edge, just to clarify if people weren't aware. I've done, there's books on it. There's an anthology comic series I've done on it, which I can't remember where it is on the top of my head. So apologies, but type in Galaxy's Edge and you should be able to find it. And obviously that's what the Disney World Park is all about. 
I mentioned Rupert and Das, obviously they're friends, they already knew each other from Quest for the Hidden City, and then they meet Sky. Das is already friends with Sky, but Rupert meets Sky. So you've got that, you've got the thug interaction, you've got leaving Batu, you've got trying to kind of figuring out what they're doing. Apparently the quest is going to take around two weeks. Das shows off this weird compassy thing, the Astro Resonance Machine. And the whole time, Rupert wants to be able to send communications to Jeddah because at the point of this going on, you know, it's after the Battle of Jeddah. I think I said earlier, it's like one day or so after the Battle of Jeddah. And so a lot of people still haven't come back. People don't know if people have survived, who's died. They just hear like something's going on in Jeddah. And I believe throughout this book, they get little drips and drabs of more information as to what's going on, which is also what I think happens in Cataclysm as well. So it's like everyone across the galaxy is steadily getting like drip fed information on what's actually going on on Jeddah, who the cause is, was it the Jedi, is it the path of the open hand, etc, etc. So that's quite an interesting story beat as well throughout this. So then you get the interaction where Rupa, Das and Sky meet Fel Ix, as well as the two other path of the open hand members. And I think Rupert pulls out her lightsaber and then is like, you know, back off in essence. And they manage to keep Felix on the ship because I think they want Felix to help undo the damage to Communication Boy or they could have it useful or something like that. Or I can't remember off the top of my head, I haven't really written it down, but it's not actually relevant to the plot because the two other path members are never mentioned again after Felix goes on the ship. They never really mention the other ones. And then towards the end of the story, when Felix is reunited with their family, there's just no mention at all of it. So, you know, we don't need to worry about those too much. And as I said, throughout the whole story you've got Helis is chasing up Sky, and the Brightbird ship keeps coming up to certain places via hyperspace, trying to use the Astro Resonance Machine compass thing. Keep trying to use that to find coordinates, because Daz realised you can connect up to the computer, and then it seems to kind of show coordinates to places. So they keep doing jumps, and the jumps they keep doing are to kind of semi-relevant places. So they go near Gloam again, I think, at one point, and they stop off at Gloam, and then they also go to one of the planets that Das and Spence went to before getting to Planet X as well. And uh, they never actually get to Planet X, to clarify. They actually just give up at one point because... It's confirmed like something's going on at Dalna because Rupa receives a communication from Solandra saying, look, something's happening at Dalna. There's chaos on Jeddah. And she says, look, can you meet me at Dalna because there's some investigation we need to do. There's obviously some debate about this because Das and Sky still want to go to Planet X, trying to get that glory, trying to potentially find Sky's dad, etc. But Rupert does manage to convince them and says, look, the only reason I agreed to come along to this is, you know, as long as my master didn't need me and also I'd be able to send comms to Jeddah, try and speak with Solandra. She specifically asked me to do this, so I have to do it. They, I think they got one hyperspace jump after that, but then afterwards Rupert's like, no, seriously, we need to, we need to go back. And this is an incredibly minor spoiler for Path of Vengeance, but it's a part I've just got to in the book itself, is that Planet X actually has something called the veil around it. And the veil actually prevents force-sensitive individuals from accessing the planet. Now, the description of what the planet actually feels like when people are on there is like you're drunk on the force. But this is from people who are not force-sensitive, or at least are not very strong force-sensitives. So you cannot get through the veil if you are force-sensitive. So it's one of those tales where you don't find out in the book, but if... Rupert had actually gone with Das and Sky to Planet X and got to the Vale, they would have all been killed. There's this strange, like, liquid stuff in the atmosphere that as a ship tries to go through, the liquid kind of goes around the ship, and if there's a Force Sensitive on board, it seems to kill them or crush them. Plus, Planet X actually seems to be the homeworld of the Nameless slash the Leveler creatures that we saw in Phase 1 of the High Republic, and obviously more of their origins have been shown in Phase 2 of the High Republic. So, Planet X not only seems to be where these Nameless creatures are from, plus where all these rumours are from and this mythos about trying to get there and stuff, but also we did actually see it in Phase 1 of the High Republic. We saw it in the latest chronological piece of Phase 1 content as of recording this, and that is the High Republic Eye of the Storm 2. 
So there are two comic issues written by Charles Saul, which are all about Marky on Row, which I really, really enjoy. I think they're fantastic. I did an episode on it quite a while back if you want to hear more information about it. But in the comic itself, Marky on Row takes the Nile. That's how he shows them where the Leveller and the Nameless are from. So it's all interconnected, obviously, as we knew when the High Republic was first kind of put together, things would all be interconnected. But Planet X has actually been in a lot more content before Quest for Planet X, even in Phase 1. As I am only about halfway through the book, my information on Planet X may be limited if more information comes to light, but this is just a bit of bonus information I thought yourselves would be interested in if you haven't read Path of Vengeance, because obviously this is relevant. As I said, Phase 2 of the High Republic has got a lot of interconnected stories in ways you wouldn't exactly imagine. So yeah, really like that detail, and it's so fun reading Path of Vengeance and having those details. And even in Path of Vengeance, uh, Sunshine Dobbs is in there, and he mentions Spence Lefbrook, which obviously is Das's dad. So lots of little connections. But then actually at Dalna, they actually see the communication boy and notice that a lot of the chaos and stuff is going on. It's because of this communication boy. They realize what the path of the open hand have been doing, and then they ask Felix to sort it out, to fix it. And Felix does do that. That's when Rupert does save Felix's life, diving out into space, wearing a spacesuit, uses her lightsabers to deflect cannon fire from another ship. And there's a little bit of art in the book about that, and it's really, really cool, and it's such a, a cool moment. It almost wipes out Rupert completely. She gets like hit by it and deflects it, but it pushes her so far back in space, and Felix sees how how much threat she put herself into just to try and save their ship, which kind of turns Felix in that way. And then Sky notices that the override codes for these communication boys is actually in Graphian, which is like a language that the graphs have been using. It's like a coding language that Sky knows. And so he realizes that he can actually put like an override code, puts it in the communication boys, and then when it gets activated, it sends across to every communication boy in theory that the Arpathy Open Hand have infected with their virus or whatever they've done to it. But he notes that it's not actually a virus. He notes that someone who has graph capabilities, who has like access to the graphs, or probably a graph to be honest with you, they gave them the language, they gave the Path of the Open Hand the details so they could implement this thing into these communication boys. So it is a manipulation, but it's actually just doing something that the boys could do anyway. And there's a lot of, you know, unsure stuff what the graphs are up to, because in the Battle of Jeddah, there is a certain graph that has shown to be collaborating with the Path of the Open Hand as well. So that kind of all links together. And I suspect that as I'm reading Path of Vengeance, when we see the perspective from Yana Ro and Marda Ro at the time of Dalna, obviously from the Path of the Open Hand's perspective, we'll kind of see what their reactions are to these communication boys and what the mother's reaction is to the communication boys no longer working in the way they thought. So that's a really interesting part that connects to the wider of uh, Phase 2 of the High Republic. And then it all kind of wraps up fairly nicely. Salandra tells them to, you know, go meet a Batu. Then the whole crew go to Batu, and that's when everyone kind of reconvenes with each other, and it's all quite nice. You know, Das waits for his dad, and then you've got Sky meets with their brother, and then you've got Felix. Their family does get saved, gets taken to Batu, and then all of the crew manage to see Felix reunited with their family. And it's all like, it's a really nice heartwarming ending. So I really, really like that. Das confirms that he's going to spend a little bit more time with his dad until he's old enough and then he's going to go to pilot school and then he'll look into becoming a pathfinder and it's just it's a really pleasant ending for a book that I didn't know where this was going to go I knew it was a junior novel so I knew it wasn't going to be like super depressing but a lot of the High Republic especially in phase two there's a lot of darkness there especially when the path of the open hand are involved and even in quest for the hidden city there's quite some intense horror elements that I did appreciate again written by George Mann but this book's just got a really nice pleasant ending but I just like so much how that connection there with the, the Dalna part, because the Dalna thing is the Night of Sorrows, and that is like a major part of Phase 2 of the High Republic. It's in Cataclysm, it's in Path of Vengeance, as obviously somewhat touched upon in this. It is a major, major event in Phase 2 of the High Republic. So really, really enjoyed that element, that connection. Obviously, it's already its own story, but I like those little connections there. 
But I think that's just about everything in this plot that I can think of. There might be the odd thing here or there, but obviously, as I always say to people, please pick up this book where you can. It's a junior novel. It's only a hundred and something odd pages. It's quite small as well. If you're an avid, fast reader, you could probably read this in an afternoon. It only took me a couple of sit downs to read it. And like every minute or so, you're turning a page. So really recommend if you're a big fan of Star Wars, especially High Republic stuff, don't sleep on the junior novels. They are really, really good. But all of phase two of The High Republic has been really, really good so far. So um, just big thumbs up from me. So that's where I'm going to wrap up my review. So just a couple of quick things before I end the episode. What have we got coming up over the coming weeks? I don't know, if I'm honest with you. I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm tempted to do the High Republic volume two comics of the Marvel run. I'm fairly tempted to do that because, you know, I'm in the High Republic feel now. So maybe trying to get a lot of that done before High Republic Phase 3 stuff comes out. And also where Path of Vengeance is the last piece of content, it means I really have to get all the other content done before I do that book review. And when I do that book review, I want it to be shortly after I finish the book. And I'm about a third to halfway through the book at the moment. So I'm fairly tempted to do the High Republic Marvel Comics Phase 2, uh, which will be issues 6 to 10. Then I could also do the Dark Horse Comics The Nameless Terror, which is written by George. Man, and they have some connections to this book as well. There's the one shot Quest for the Jedi that I'm fairly tempted to do as well. And then obviously, there's the High Republic Adventures Volume 2 book as well. Um, but I've not actually got the last few issues of the High Republic Adventures, so that's just going to have to wait for the time being. And then there's the third edition of the Star Wars original High Republic manga that has Edge of Balance precedent. I read that the other day, it's quite fun. That's kind of what I'm looking at. Obviously, there are still the comics I need to do between Hidden Empire and the upcoming Dark Droids crossover event. So I'm aware that I need to get those under my belt as well. But I think High Republic is going to take precedent, which is weird saying now because I just mentioned the manga. But I think that High Republic is kind of going to take precedent just so I can kind of not quite get out of the way because it makes it sound like I'm not enjoying it. But because I'm reading a lot of High Republic stuff at the moment and I've got like the time scale as well, I think I'm going to try and do that. But we'll see. Sorry for being so indecisive. It's basically a rambly end. I could have just said, I don't know what I'm doing next week. But, ah well. And aside from that, make sure you check out some of the other content I've been doing. So I was on the Star Wars timeline recently, so that's on YouTube. I've been on Ben's show quite a few times. Ben's been on uh, Genuine Chit Chat a couple times as well, and also I've had him on like Star Wars discussion shows a few times. We speak about Ahsoka. Obviously, there's the Ahsoka series come out. So we speak about Ahsoka in Clone Wars, in Rebels, in live action, what we expect from the Ahsoka series, all that stuff. So please make sure you check that out. The link is in the description. There's also Rebels Reviewed Episode 2 is out now. That's where myself, Math and Dave talk about Seasons of Star Wars Rebels. So Episode 2 of that came out a couple weeks back. We've recorded Episode 3, so I'll be releasing that in the coming weeks as well because we're going to be watching all of Rebels before Ahsoka comes out and releasing our Season 4 of Rebels Review before that comes out as well. So I really encourage people to watch that with us because, you know, Star Wars Rebels is absolutely incredible. In addition to that, I was also on Comics on Trial. So I was the judge in a debate between Scott Weatherly, the 20th century geek, and Tony Farina of Indie Comics Spotlight, all about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, obviously the Indiana Jones film. So we have a nice little debate about that. You can listen to that on the feed of Comics in Motion, or if you want to watch the video version, you can go to youtube.com slash genuinechitschat. And then to support me, you can follow me on social media at Genuine Chitcher on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, all those places. I post quite a bit of content across all of them. The majority of them I give the same content to, but there's a couple of little bits and pieces that you'll find from me on Instagram, you'll find elsewhere on Twitter and etc. But if that's all a bit too much for you and you just want to have a good idea of what I'm doing each week, subscribe to the Pop Culture Collective newsletter. That's pccnewsletter.com, links in the description, and you'll get updated with about a paragraph or so of, it's basically less than 200 words, of what I'm doing every week, what I'm releasing on Genuine Chit Chat, what I'm releasing on Star Wars Comics and Canon, and then other collaborations or guest spots and stuff I've done, as well as some other amazing creators as well. So that's a really good way to keep up to date with everything that I'm doing. 
Now, if you want to support the show, you can share on social media. You can tell your friends about it. You can leave reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, or you can leave a rating on Spotify. You can leave reviews in all the other places. So please do that. It really helps the show out. But the best way you can support the show, apart from sharing it and things, is by supporting financially. So you can either support at patreon.com slash genuine chit chat or coffee.com slash genuine chit chat. That's ko-fi.com. Either way, you want to help out the show. If you want to commit to a monthly subscription or if you want to give a one-off donation, either way is still incredible and I really, really appreciate it. And you will still get awarded with bonus episodes of Afterthoughts. On Patreon, you get immediate access to the RSS feed that you can put into any podcast app of your choice. And you get immediate access to every episode of Afterthoughts that I've been doing over the last sort of two and a half years. But if that's too much of a commitment for you and you just want to cherry pick a couple episodes, for example, some of the Star Wars Legends book reviews I've done or any of the Canon book reviews I've done that I've not released elsewhere or anything along those lines, you can donate to me on Coffee. Even one pound, you'll still get a couple episodes of Afterthoughts. But the more you donate, the more you'll get. And when you give the donation, if you just put a note in there saying what you'd like, I will send it to you. So loads of ways to get bonus content, loads of ways to support the show. And I just appreciate every single one of you listening, especially all the way up to the very end of this. So friends, I'll talk to you next week with whatever I next decide, likely another bit of High Republic content. And I appreciate each and every one of you listening all the way to the very end. And of course, may the force be with you. The intro for Star Wars Comics and Canon is arranged by myself, Mike Burton, and the backing music was made by Eric Matias of soundimage.org. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.